All right, welcome back to the Paperless Fellows. I'm Justin, the uh, contributing podcast producer and man with no post-it notes, never. And uh, with me, as always, is Carrie. Uh, Carrie, how are you today? I am great. I am the constitutional post-it note on the Federalist Papers, I guess. There you so go. I, I will fill in on that. <laughs> the man, that the man who himself is a post-it note, Carrie, um, is with us as well. And we are back discussing today Federalist Paper number twenty-one. Other defects. The Federalist Papers finally have reached drinking age in most state in the well in all states now. All states if, now, yes. If, if the Federalist Papers want to get their highway money, they have to have. They're drinking they're, they're edge. Yeah. 21. 21. Um, so uh, other defects of the present confederation is the title of this paper for the Independent Journal. Alexander Hamilton is your author uh, here. And uh, Kerry is your role as summarizer-in-chief. Um, as always, are you prepared, sir? This will be a nutshell of a summary. It was This is pretty fr- straightforward compared to the swamp-like morass of uh, – the last few papers that ex- deeply that did a deep dive into uh, confederacies, large and small, ancient and not so ancient. This one, by comparison, is relatively straightforward for Hamilton, by which I mean it was basically like trying to read the Cimmerian in Aramaic. But <laughs> three main points, three main points, mm-hmm. and it's directly about the uh, weaknesses of the Arts of Confederation. So he says, okay, look, here in 21, there's three ways that the Article of Confederation are no good, and they are, number one, that it has no way of enforcing itself. Mm-hmm. It's this crazy form of government where it has all these rules and regulations and commands on how to follow th- on what to do and procedures, but ultimately... If any member state decides they don't particularly care for him, they could just say, yeah, uh, we don't like that so much. And the federal government can't do anything about it. Defect number two, there's no guarantee of the states. Uh, this is a weird argument for Hamilton because, you know, a lot of the arguments of the anti-federalists um, and the states' rights, be- rights people at the time were that the states needed protection from the federal government, you know, that this, a strong federal government would overwhelm the states. And Hamilton sort of takes that argument and turns it on his head by saying, look, what the states need is protection of the federal government, not from it. Mm-hmm. They need protection not only from foreign powers, but also from internal rebellions and usurpers and hostile factions, which we'll get into more in the rest of the episode. And then finally, yeah. um, Flaw number three or defect number three is just no money. The current federal government under the Artists Confederation, it's dead broke. We've heard this refrain over and over again. Uh, basically, the only way that the federal government has to get money is holding the constitutional colonial equivalents of a uh, donation drive or a telethon. Have the states call in, pledge money to the federal government, <laughs> and inevitably fail to pay. And to my knowledge, the federal government didn't even have any um, promotional gifts to offer for the donations, like a copy of Kensburn's Civil War or a tote bag or That's anything. True. So, yeah, it was no surprise that the states very rarely came through with any money at all. So, those are the three defects. That's the whole paper. There you go. Three ways the articles aren't good. Summarizer, 
is we back, need to make better. back in effect with a, an efficient summary there. Um, thank you, Carrie. So, all right. Well, um, you know, I'm a person that loves outlines, that loves uh, lists and order. I know and, this. And top to bottom. Um, and, and here Hamilton's back. He's speaking my language. He says, you know, we've just gotten through outlining all the problems with confederacies over the last half a dozen papers. But before we get into the next thing we need to talk about, he wants to get into is, you know, all of the uh, the real malignity of the disease is what is the phrase he uses when speaking about the defects of the Articles of Confederation now uh, that's in effect mm -hmm. that they're talking about. And, and the first one he gets into is the total inability of the federal government to issue any kind of sanction for a violation of any laws that it passes. It's got it has no teeth. It has no way to it has no way to uh, extract uh, and enforce um, obedience or to punish disobedience uh, for any rules uh, or any violations of any laws uh, that are in effect. So, you know, that's kind of uh, his first main point. And he, he goes on to talk about either we acknowledge this and we have to sort of deal with it if, you know, if the Articles of Confederation were going to stay there. Or we're going to do what all of those other confederacies we just got done talking about, which is to sort of read in powers that aren't really there and ignore uh, Article 2 of the Articles of Confederation uh, when it doesn't suit our interests. Um, and that one was that the uh, each state shall retain every power, jurisdiction, and right not expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. So that was Article 2 of the Articles of Confederation. And and Hamilton here is saying, you know, either we're going to have to live with this, which is kind of absurd, or we're going to end up doing what every other confederacy did before, um, well, not every other confederacy, but all the ones they had recently talked about, which is sort of ignore it and read in the ability to do things uh, that kind of contravene that expressed uh, statement when it suited them. Um, and he mentioned that those are uh, a repeated theme in the eulogies of those who uh, oppose this new constitution and then who want to favor the uh, confederacy route. Um, what are your thoughts here? Did you, well, first of all, mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, Hamilton once again shows his superlative skill as uh, a professional beater of dead horses. I mean, we've <laughs> all of these things we have heard before. This is not the fir first time these themes have popped up. Mm -hmm. But that being said, one of the things that surprised me early on when he was talking about the uh, the second article and how it, pernicious it was uh, is that second article is pretty close to the Tenth Amendment that was yeah. that was eventually put into the Constitution. It seems like Hamilton is not a huge fan of what would eventually become the Tenth Amendment. The you know the uh, reservation of rights of the states. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought um, I had a similar thought. Um, one of the other thoughts that uh, I don't want to go too far off the path here because I have I have a way to take us off the path, but I want to make sure that we're done with this avoid part of the that, path first. Avoid yeah. that route. Let's stay. <laughs> we must remain on the path. So um, stay on the path. So the last part that he talks about in this section, though, uh, he mentions the American Confederacy. If it does, you know, if it's going to exist as a form of government, which the federal government has absolutely no ability to enforce or punish for violations of its own laws, that we will have created something or the American Confederacy would uh, be something that had no prior uh, example in history as far as a successful form of government, where you have a federal power with no power. 
uh, <laughs> in a confederacy. And he just said that would just be so far out in left field, uh, you know, that it would be a new, a new, une- uh, let's see, what did he say? Um, a new and unexplained phenomenon in the political world. There you go. Thank you. And I have to, say, alliteration. I have to yeah. say, I feel like that's a bit, uh, I don't mean to use too strong a language, but I, Poppycock, I must say. It's, it's, it's pure horse feathers. Calm, calm down, Kerry. <laughs> I mean, there might be some children listening somewhere. Cashing yeah. out at length these other confederacies where he and uh, Madison slammed them for how they had no power to protect themselves from their own member states or to inf- really enforce rules on their member mm-hmm. states. And then he goes and acts like, this has never happened before. Yeah. I mean... Utter utter silliness and applesauce, I must say. I mean, we we've just read we've just read your examples, Hamilton, and you. I mean, I know you make it impenetrable read, but we're, we're <laughs> treat us with some respect. Come on, you just talked about it, and now you act like it's it's this new crazy thing. I'm not buying in on that one. You're not, not buying, buying it, Hamilton. Not buying it. Not buying it. All right, fair I'm enough. Um, what I, what I thought was interesting here was this uh and of course hamilton would have no way of knowing this but this idea that under the new american system uh under the new constitution you know never again would you have laws without any type of uh that were uh essentially impotent right where there's no no actual uh punishment uh, sanction i believe he uses the term yeah he loves that word sanction Sanction, i believe in my cap my copy it is uh all caps locks so he was screaming in his email when he was writing it sanction (laughs) sanction so um i was gonna go in one direction but i I think maybe i'll stay on the path yeah i'm gonna pass that stay on the path so stay on the path i'm gonna try to try try to so all right so uh he gave me such a nice outline it would it'd be a shame to to divert from it so uh, the next the next topic that he says you're is, a better man than Hamilton in that respect because he is he is a human segue, so you're doing much better than he does. I'm fighting my my urges. <laughs> to, uh, I, when I read his paper, I thought to myself, I could envision Hamilton writing this paper and thinking, "Oh, I so strongly want to mention some Greek statuary theft, <laughs> but it would, I just can't think of a way to work it in." <laughs> or you know, he he loves to work in this side, those little side drifts, but we didn't go on many uh, uh, extra excursions here. We you did, know maybe he, maybe he stayed he, on the one two three. So we got to we've got to discipline ourselves at least as well as Alexander Hamilton did on this paper. Okay, I'll try on to keep paper. that in mind. Um, I think we have plenty of chances to throw rocks at him on that particular issue in the, in the future. But on this future. one, he exhibited some discipline. Some so discipline. I'll give him right, so credit where credits due. All right. Um, so the number two point here, uh, the want of mutual guarantee of the state governments is another capital imperfection in the federal plan. Um, so what did you make of this one? Oh, I love this. Okay. I loved it because I love how he flips the whole thing around uh, of, you know, again, one of the main pieces of opposition or arguments of opposition to the Constitution was we don't need no stinking strong government. We've got these perfect states, and the perfect these states handle all of our wants and needs. And if we bring in this strong government, we're just going to have this distant, far away executive power that's going to be encroaching on our lives, and we won't have any local control. 
And Han won't take sides and says, well, that's the opposite of true. Mm-hmm. Because you need the strong federal government to protect all that great thing you've got going on the state there. <laughs> He's basically saying to him, well, that's you know, that's a really nice uh, state government you got there. It'd be, be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> you know, like uh, some people rebelled against your state government and yeah. destroyed it and you know, we up here in, uh, in the national capital with our nice shiny army and not have anything. We'd love to come and help you, but you know, you gotta, you gotta give us the permission to. Exactly. I mean, otherwise, we'd be bra- know, we, we can't you know, we help just... you. We want to help you. We're we're so helpful. Yeah. Oh, I love this argument. It was classic. Yeah. Classic. Yeah, I was I was a fan of it. I thought it was a great a great uh, turn of argument there. But usually, the current day Federalists or people who self proclaim Federalists are very much you know um, take the states' rights you know small limited federal power you know as much power as possible reserved to the states um, and and you know argue against the consolidation of, of well it's of, a term that lends itself to many meanings yes well it's, it's subject to multiple interpretations i know but i you know <laughs> i just gotta but say <laughs> if there's a point if that's the time to make that point it's here because again <laughs> i love how hamilton turns the argument on its head and makes the concern makes a an argument uh directly the opposite of what you would expect it, it really reminded me i was wondering if we, you know with you often will talk about legal precedent mm-hmm. um in some of our conversations and um that pesky when I wrote thing. this yeah. part of the paper uh you probably see where i'm going with this it reminded me very strongly in law school where they talked about the uh, the lochner decision uh-huh. and how the court there took a lot of the um the rights of the constitution, I think it was the 14th amendment, if I'm not missing, uh, and you know, which the 14th amendment intending to protect people and the rights of citizens mm-hmm. from deprivation, the right to, you know, the rights and the freedoms and not have those rights and freedom freedoms abridged. And in the Lochner court, um, basically taking, taking that and saying, well, among the rights and freedoms a person has is the right to contract. And so you can, you shouldn't. Be, you have the right to not have a minimum wage. You have the right yeah. to contract to make as little as someone wants to pay you. You know, turn it on its head. The yeah. idea you know, that was the case where I think it was New York passed the minimum wage law, mm-hmm. and uh, no one expected it to be overturned. And this court got a hold of it and said, "Well, the Fourteenth Amendment protects the rights of citizens, so you know the people have the right to." work for poverty wages if so they want to minimum yeah. wage and and, so that, and work basically without any that. type of uh, guaranteed work turned wage. upside yeah. down yeah um that just, just for clarity that lochner v new york has subsequently been overturned uh is no longer good law as they <laughs> yes <say. laughs> because we have minimum wage so i guess somewhere along the, along the way someone should go just, take a look at that just in case anybody's wondering is out there listening saying well what's wrong with that um <laughs> It's no longer good law. <laughs> so, if I recall, uh, what was it? I think Oliver Wooden Holmes read a really great dissent in that decision. I I should have actually read it in preparation for uh, this podcast, but I just that just came to me now. <laughs> oh well. Oh well. So, um, all right. Anything else to say here with point number two? Since yes. We're, we're staying yes, on target. Indeed. Fire away. I really, I really uh, didn't like how they threw shade at Daniel Shays. 
um, <laughs> because they're obviously when we first started this podcast. I think in our background episode, mm-hmm. we talked about we talked about we talked about the context that Shades the Rebellion. Constitution mm-hmm. was written in, and the context of the Federalist Papers and what they were, what they and the Constitution were rea- in reaction to. And one of those things was. The Shays Rebellion, mm-hmm. which happened much, not long before the Constitution was written, where there was a rebellion in Massachusetts uh, regarding uh, taxation and payment of uh, uh, so, uh, Revolutionary War pensions. Yep. And uh, <clears throat> relatively minor uprising, but the state of Massachusetts was really bumbling in how they put it down. It took them a lot longer than anyone thought they were going to. And a lot of people were worried that it could have been a lot worse. And if it was well organized, it might mm-hmm. have overthrown the state government. and might have spread to other states. Um, and so that's, that's just, what this that's just the power of the people, Kerry. That's that's that? the that's the grassroots power of the people expressing hey, I'm themselves. Not, I'm not right? express, I'm not commentating on. it. I'm just saying that's just, what it was. Yes. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I, I keep. I'm, I'm like focused on getting us off topic. Apparently, go ahead. You're saying. Hey, you're you're keeping up the heritage of Hamilton. You'd be proud. I'm channeling him. Um, uh, so, anyways, he writes here talking about how that that's the core that he's wanting the people to react to in this section where he's saying the states need the protection of the federal government because he's talking yeah. about hey, if there's a faction or a group inside your state that is throwing your state into chaos, um, you know, disrupting the government or taking over the government. Um, the people that say as a whole will probably want to call in the federal government to bring order back. Because mm-hmm. they said, look, the state of Massachusetts had that very nearly happen with the Shades Rebellion, where you know it disrupted most of the central, like big chunk of the central and western part of the state. They said, you're lucky that it was just by this bumbling fool, Daniel Shays. Didn't say that in so many words. But he said, imagine if it was someone equivalent to a Caesar or a Cromwell. You know, if it was someone who had aspirations of glory, because Daniel Shays had fairly limited goals. He was just trying to, you know, deal with some monetary issues, you know, issues of getting some people paid and excessive taxes, etc. He didn't want to become the new leader of Massachusetts or anything. But Hamilton says, what if someone like that was at the head of a rebellion? What if the person who was leading Shays' rebellion wasn't Daniel Shays, it was Daniel Caesar or Daniel Cromwell, who said, hey, all this stuff is bad, we should overthrow the whole state, and then we should also keep going into other states. That's the specter he wants the, the reader mm-hmm. to think about is, you know, you're just sitting around in uh, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, wherever – and you don't even have a particular problem. All of a sudden, Massachusetts lights on fire. Yeah, its government's overturned, it and spreads. the people from Massachusetts are coming into your state and trying to spread the revolution in your your state and disrupt that. Mm-hmm. You know that that's a fairly strong argument. Uh, it is. You know, one I think that would appeal to people because I think people at this stage are looking towards wanting to have stability after a long period of war and chaos. It is. And so it would appeal. Strong. Um, what was I saying? I think we were just saying if there was anything else we needed to yeah. say about this uh, protection of the federal government uh, to the state, which is, again, strong argument because it takes one of the strongest points of the Anti-Federalists and it turns it against them. Yes. So 
Good to be Cleverly done. Yes, good to be practiced. Cleverly done. Cleverly done. Well played, sir. Well played. Uh, And then, again, uh, the next point then is the ability to raise money, or the lack thereof under the current uh, Articles of Confederation. Um, And I believe you... I always feel like this is the issue that's nearest and dearest to Hamilton's heart. Yeah, Maybe I'm reading a lot into the fact that he was later the Treasury Secretary, but... I, I always get the sense that Hamilton is a man who's very interested in money and what he would like to do with it. Mm. Not necessarily to benefit himself, you know, you know, to the benefit of the nation, but he's a man who, who, who loves commerce and its many interactions. He basically say. argues for a national sales tax here as, as this great tax that the federal government yeah. could lobby. Consumption uh, tax, regressive tax. tax. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you know, it is funny because it, it, taxation was a major driving issue with uh, Shays' Rebellion, I believe. Yeah. And uh, when he became the Treasury Secretary, um, it was one of the first things he had an issue with was a consumption tax on whiskey, I believe, mm-hmm. of uh, – the fact that he tried to put a consumption tax and uh, well, it's excise tax. Sorry, excise on tax, whiskey. Yes. Yeah, and surprise, surprise, he uh, spurred another rebellion from it. We talked about um, that, and I think in an earlier paper, um, I forget which paper that was, but I, I feel like that was uh, what rebellion was that? That was the whiskey rebellion. Was okay. There you go. Aptly named. Yes, it had a very it had a lot of. Uh, connections to kentucky also because kentucky like uh like uh, what was it western pennsylvania mm-hmm. uh also similar situation where both of them often used whiskey as a form of currency mm-hmm. and the excise tax on whiskey uh inhibited their ability to conduct commerce and also there was a sense by a lot of the uh, smaller farmers that the larger producers the institutional uh you know, uh, distilleries basically got mm-hmm. a lower rate of effective taxation than the guy with a still in the woods. But yeah, he did want to do the consumption slash excise tax. He, you could tell it's not just an issue for him of it being an efficient way to make money, mm-hmm. but it's also in his mind like a, a morally superior tax. I feel like Hamilton views the consumption tax, the way that some people now view uh, taxes on like alcohol and tobacco. It's like what people don't feel bad about, you know, putting it's a heavier tax. tax on those items. Yeah. It's often a go-to when there's a yeah. revenue crunch. It's often, often like, well, referred to as a sin tax. Yeah. Yeah. Sin taxes. That, yeah. That's right. Because they think, well, it's not, just that we want to raise revenue it's that we want to help people to help themselves by discouraging them to from drinking too much alcohol mm-hmm. or smoking too much cigarettes that's how they sell it to themselves as putting more tax on it and i think hamilton feels a similar way about this consumption taxes you know rich people and poor people alike should live more simple frugal lives and you know we shouldn't cry about people who who are feel like they're paying too much taxes because that just means they're trying to live too richly. They need to live a more frugal life. Yeah. But that's also an ironic thing for Hamilton because 
he's the one who seems to talk about promotion of commerce so much. Yeah. And he definitely feels that it's, it's a tax that will not get out of hand. Um, and, and will not result in an oppression of any one section of the population by the federal government because the people themselves control how much tax they want to pay by how much good how, how much of a particular good they tend to consume. So exactly. if they don't want to pay a lot of tax, they just don't consume the good. Um, if they don't mind paying a lot of tax, then they'll just consume away. Um, he contrasted that in this paper with what had been the the, the prior practice under the Articles of Confederation to try to uh, allocate um, responsibility for the national debt and responsibility for funding the national government amongst the states. Um, and, and the prior quotas. methods were but land met, huh? <laughs> With quotas. Nobody yeah. likes the quotas. Quotas or, or valuation of land uh, or, or the quotas of the number of people and um, – yeah. Yeah, and he said, "Look, none of those ever work." Persons, huh? Yes, quote is based on the valuation of the land or population. Yeah, and so he just said, "Look, this this just never works," and and he he ran through it quick and he compared the Netherlands to larger countries within Europe and said, "Look, they've got more land, they've got more people, but clearly the Netherlands makes more money." Um, and and you know, no one would say that, you know. Russia is more valuable than the Netherlands, I think, is mm-hmm. one of the uh, – yeah, Germany, France, compared to the United Netherlands. Uh, he took it at the state level and he compared various states within the nation. Uh, and then he also compared, like, certain counties within, like, the state of New York because obviously the uh, – I think he said Kings County is much greater than that would be of Montgomery County in the state of New York. Uh, and so he says you can see it abroad. You can see it through history. You can see it again now here in our present day. This type mm-hmm. of valuation system just results in inequalities. Um and and is just not going to work. Um, mm-hmm. And so he he says, you know, if you have a uh, centralized branch of taxation, that would be more likely to get things done than uh, leaving it up to uh, the discretion to amongst the states on how to do things. Um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of where he leaves uh, this last point. Uh, he doesn't really have a capstone thesis at the end of his paper like some of his other ones. Well, um, I think he does it as he goes along in each of the three points. But on well, that third yeah, point, yeah. Um, I think it's funny how he undermines these that the quotas can be an effective way of allocating taxation. Because his argument is, as you were saying, you know, no one can really accurately value land because it's worth different amounts you know land is not always worth the same amount and similarly you can't really value people because some people produce more wealth than others mm-hmm. and you can't really say population base is a good way to do it either so you know the quota system is really it's unknowable you know you can't really allocate that way you know no one knows how how to value the quota to assign different people mm-hmm. but then he moves on and says so that's why we got to do direct taxation to the federal government itself you know, by letting them directly levy taxes on tariff, on you know, using tariffs and excise taxes, etc. And the first question that pops up in my mind is, so why don't you just use? The, couldn't you just use those methods that the federal government is going to use 
to get its taxes. Yeah. Look at the value of those things and base your quotas on that. I mean, mm-hmm. he seems to just let that one slide on by. Like, Nothing to the see thing, here. The Nothing. thing you're proposing to do, why don't we just do that? And do the At the state level? Yeah. <laughs> it's being slippery on us. Nothing to see here, Carrie. <laughs> Move along. Move along. <laughs> so I just want to point out, though, in this paper, we've got an argument for the ability of the federal government to go out and physically enforce its laws, uh, mm-hmm. to put down insurrection and factions by put down means taking the military uh, or some form of executive power into a state mm-hmm. and suppressing, perhaps through the use of physical force, uh, mm-hmm. a, a political oppositional movement. Uh, you have an argument in favor of... Um, an increase in the, or, you know, granting and then the use of increase of, of, of taxes at the federal level, uh, level on people in individual people, uh, and, and arguments for duties and excises as well. And I just take a step back and hear that is what Alexander Hamilton is arguing for. And the federalists are arguing for the federalists are arguing for he, in this he clearly, is a monarchist in all but name. All power <laughs> to the federal government. That's what he clearly wants. Mm-hmm. The arguments against the arguments against him by the anti-federalists ring strong in this one. And this one, yeah, you really get the sense of he wants all the power to be concentrated at the federal level. Um, I mean, that's the theme of all of this. I mean, yeah, the protection of the state governments <clears throat> by the federal government. Arguably, it's a nod to state power, you know, similar to the nods he's made in the past about we're going to leave things with state government. No, but I think but you act actually. On this, on this one, it it's just well. like the reason he wants state laws, the states to be protected by the federal government, is so they can just keep paying their money up to the yeah. federal government. He wants them to exist as cogs in the machine. Yeah. Um, the foundation of his pyramid, right? Um, yeah. The, the United States of selling Amway products. <laughs> He's an Avon rep is what it comes down to. <laughs> Deep down in heart. <laughs> but I did want to briefly mention again, it's nuts to me that Hamilton seems to come out. I almost feel like it's just one of those, uh, an aside he put in without really thinking it through. Mm-hmm. It's nuts to me that he advocate, would advocate for a consumption tax when one of the themes in the Federalist paper that he's he and Madison have hit on several times is the best way for a country to become rich is the Adam Smith Wealth of Nations way of generating commerce, yeah. and generating trade. Because they, you know the US doesn't have a bunch of gold. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a bunch of the traditional means of hard currency wealth. So they gotta use commerce. Mm-hmm. So on one hand they have this major theme of, you know, we've got to get together as a nation. We've got to have this underlying level of laws that are going to establish com- – that are going to encourage commerce. And then we're going to make our wealth through commerce. And then he comes in and says, and we're going to tax the heck out of the commerce yeah. and destroy it as soon as it starts trying to breathe. And he says, you know, that those indirect taxes have got to be the chief way that the United States would raise revenue in the immediate future. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's what he views as the best possible way for the U.S. to fund itself. Uh, in the foreseeable future, those indirect types of taxes. So um, maybe that's where he departs from a traditional laissez-faire Smith thinker. Is that you know a more traditional capitalist would think would take the position that 
commerce exists for its own sake to make profits and to produce wealth. And incidental benefit is to provide an economic benefit to other people besides the person who's in business. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hamilton seems to think, no, I want all this commerce and wealth generation to happen. But the main reason what to happen is to feed the government. <laughs> that, oh, that would be the takeaway from this paper, at least. Yes. It seems to be. <laughs> we want you to make money so we can tax the heck out of that money and send it to our capital to pay for our projects. Yeah. And so that seems to be what he wants to do. And so they can continue to provide that protection, the guarantee to the states, right? You yeah, keep, you to keep, protect you from other people yeah. who might want to use your money for other things. Yeah. You keep paying the fee, otherwise something bad might happen. Is that the, <laughs> Hamilton's Republic is like a... Uh, a mafia. A very subtle mafioso <laughs> coming around demanding protection money. Yeah. And that's, that's really sort of how they viewed him at the time when the Whiskey Rebellion happened, is like say, look... We're happy out here in the hinterlands, growing our crops, making our whiskey, mm -hmm. and leave, living pretty independent from the government. They don't give us anything. We don't want to give them too much. Yeah. Uh, Hamilton would have none of it. Nope. None of it. So, all right. I think that wraps us up on Fairless Paper number 21. Uh, and yes. we'll be back hopefully well, sooner rather yeah. than later. You know? Um, and uh, so thanks again for joining us and tuning in, everybody. We'll see you. We'll see you soon. See you in 22. All right. Take care. Bye.